Hello, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast that revolves around the seismic shifts in technology culture and the digital age. You're listening to episode number 24. I am Joe Darnell, and with me is Mr. Joshua Pfeiffer. How are you doing? Hey, man. Doing well? Doing well, well, uh, well enough. Actually, you normally have a special something to drink while we're recording the show, but you don't have anything tonight. You know you're saying that just to rub it in because you know that I'm out. So I'm just trying to remind you, my friend, I, I'm here for you. I'm your support. I may send my wife out. We'll see. Really? During the show? Yeah. It, it's happened before. Hmm. <laughs> we have some in the cabinet, but I'm just trying to drink water tonight. If for, for your sake, Joshua, I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to drink without you. <laughs> we also have um, our guest this week is Mr. Robert Beginley Myers is back. Welcome back, Rob. Uh, thank you. And apparently I'm the only one who's having a special drink tonight. So <laughs> uh, what's your what's your drink? I have some uh, Knob Creek. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Good choice. That's our style. Bourbon is my my drink of choice. Mm. And so when you're not drinking Knob Creek, what are you doing lately? Well, I just launched the third season of my podcast, Anxious Machine. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. Simultaneously, as I go back to work full-time as a, a writing instructor at a college, which... Oh, piece of cake, right? <laughs> turns out podcasting over the <laughs> summer was much easier than podcasting during the school year, so we'll see how this goes. You know, that kind of reminds me of CGP Gray, the way he managed his exodus from te- his teaching career into podcast, or not podcasting, but into his YouTube career. You know, he was a man with many hats and wanted to dabble with different kinds of work and see what would be the most uh, beneficial to his vocation, career path and choices. And so, yeah, he was, he liked being a teacher because they gave him plenty of time to work on side projects until those side projects grew so well that he didn't need to be a teacher anymore. I would love to figure that out. That is the dream. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially when it comes to podcasting, it's so addictive. Uh, now that I'm a podcaster, on three, two, well, technically two shows at this time. The other one has been retired and we're going to reboot it. Uh, now that I've been bit by the bug, I really want to just be a podcaster. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually want to dabble in video. I, you've, you've seen some of the videos that I've made over the past year or so when I do like reviews of apps and stuff. They're like, yeah, they're like screen, they're like screencasts that feel like miniature documentaries. (laughs) That's a very special genre. It's really good. Yeah. And uh, since I started my podcast, I've been thinking, you know, of creating some sort of video essays that are more along the lines of what my podcast is about, which is, you know, kind of like the history of technology or the history of humans doing, doing interesting things. That's something that I want to explore once I have time for it. So you said you're teaching. What is your class? What is your field? I teach writing to people who don't know how to write. Okay. It's the lowest level of composition class that our school offers. And you mentioned before that that's what you were teaching. I wondered if you were in the same thing. Yeah, it's the same. And I love it. I I love my students. I just hate grading. I think grading is evil. So, <laughs> well, I've noticed that it's given you a plenty opportunity to interview people in school yes. for your show. It's a great benefit. Yeah. I mean, some of my favorite guests uh, that have been on my show have been people that I've met as students, and then later bumped into them and said, hey, you remember that interesting thing you you said about your life? Could I interview you about that? And they have some interesting uh, life stories to tell. Mm. <laughs> now, Joshua, you don't have any interesting life stories going on right now. <laughs> my my life is, is always boring. <laughs> uh, now, it's actually, yeah, pretty crazy all the time around here. 
I'm really impressed with the work you're doing on the, the, the website for your wife's business, the side project. It's coming along nicely. Yeah, we've, we've always got lots of little side projects, but uh, this is the first time she's really been actively engaged on the, I guess, creative side, and I'm more of the technical slash business guy. So we're actually working, I was going to say working well together, but I'll just say we're working together. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a, a bit of a challenge sometimes, yeah. That reminds me also of what you've done, Rob, with the last episode of Anxious Machine, how you did an episode all about your family's vacation on a, a camping trip. And you had, the, wasn't your wife on there and your sister and your children? Well, so it was my my wife, her two sisters and their oh. their families, you know, each couple. And then we all have kids. And so it was about, I don't know, maybe a dozen people. I can't keep count. And I just recorded the the weekend at the cabin and then I did some historical research into when did people start going into the wilderness for vacation? Like when did that become a thing that people in the city drove out of the city into the wilderness to get um, some respite from modern life? Yeah, it was, a, it was, I listened to that this morning. It was an interesting show because I was thinking the same thing uh, with some of the, some of your uh, folks you were talking to uh, were thinking, which is. What I always say is like, this is why we built houses. So we don't have to do this. Why would we? Why would we go backwards? It makes no sense to me. So yeah, I'm I'm not an outdoorsy guy. Huh. Yeah. And speaking of the great outdoors, the indoors, and why we retreat through the indoors, technology, people. It, it's just. It seems like the more technology in our life, the less we uh, spend around nature. And that was what your show was all about, or at least I good portion of it was about just, it was an interesting discussion because you notice like when we get our fill of this modern life with technology, the media, our, our work and uh, like sensory, sensory overload with conversations that never end, we retreat to, to, you know, a vacation by, you know, unplugging and going out into the boonies and uh, trying to catch some fish. It's like y'all did. So that's, that's what vacation is for us. And like you pointed out, that's not, vacation for a lot of people. That's just a way of life, or that's the way life was for a lot of people before technology entered the picture. Right. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, we, th we think of it as like getting away from it all and having this peaceful time, but the majority of people on earth, that's their daily life. Like the majority of people on earth live close to nature, <laughs> subsistence farming or, or, you know, uh, getting food from, uh, whatever local, uh, nature they have. And so it's just funny that we kind of the, the, the people who live in this specific moment in time and the specific culture get to kind of play at that experience, whereas a lot of people around the world, just that's their everyday life. Well, very good episode of the Anxious Machine podcast. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And Rob, keep it up. I want to hear more from season three. It's, uh, it's really coming along. And we should move on to the main topic for this episode. We have a wonderful thing to discuss. Apple's event from last week. They announced many products. Uh, we kind of get the vision for the rest of 2015, maybe what we can expect from the first quarter of 2016 from Apple. More and more interesting developments for the living room space, entertainment on the TV. We got better iPads, better iPhones, and nothing for the Mac. But we can still expect the operating system to update just in a couple of weeks here. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into our general thoughts, opinions, and feelings about not just the products themselves, but also Apple's event. This was, this was a really interesting keynote. Y'all remember it was a couple of weeks ago that 
there were a lot of people online that were talking about how many Apple events do we really need in the fall? Usually there's been one in September and then another one a month later where Apple would divvy up some products to discuss in the one and then other products in the other. But this time, rumor had it that Apple was only going to have one event for the fall, and there was some disagreement about that because it would it would be a great change of pace for Apple. In recent times, they've had two events for the fall, and it seems like they could fill all the time up. They'd have lots to say in both events. This time around, it really looks like we're only getting one. Any thoughts about that? Because considering that they boiled everything down to just one event, I am really impressed by the polish of the event that we got and it didn't feel rushed. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, I'm, I'm fine with one event. I mean, I, uh, that's less time I have to take off of work to, uh, to, to watch it. So, so I'm fine with one event versus two big picture. I was really impressed. It was one of the best events I've seen in a couple of years from them. They, they definitely know how to pull the emotional strings for the nerds. You know, we were, I was just, I was just in awe. Yeah. I might've had a tear. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was just grateful that there was almost no filler. I mean, there was some filler, I think with the demos maybe, but usually there, there are parts of the, the keynotes that you're kind of like, okay, you know, let's move on from this thing. But this one, um, everything that they introduced was exciting. And so it was great. Yep. Did you notice that just from the very beginning, how they didn't review things like how they have been doing this year, how well sales are going, you know, how adoption rates, you know, how their their competition is doing? It seems like they've been cutting that uh, in the last couple of events. It seems like, I mean, they, they always do a little bit, but I remember, I guess it was in June and, he, and I think he, they skipped it as well. So it could, yeah, that could be an interesting change. I noticed that Steve Jobs felt like he needed to give us a little primer at the beginning of every event, kind of get us into into the spirit of things, you know, settle in our seats and start thinking about Apple and all of its glory. And then then he would get us excited about some jazzy new products and paint the picture like a worldview of Apple's technologies, get us really excited and really anxious to hear like a punchline. And then he would say, okay, it's this, this is what I'm describing, what I've been alluding to. Here it is. It's called the iPad. And then he would, you know, dump that one on you and then describe it for the next hour. Whereas here, what we have is the Tim Cook approach where he goes up on stage. He he's all, you know, warm, you know, smiles. And he says, we are doing so great. We're so happy to have you here and let's just dive right in. So let's talk about the Apple Watch, you know, he just gets right into it. There really is just a tight presentation. Yeah, no, it's funny. Of all the presenters, though, I find Tim Cook to be, I don't know, he seems like a great guy, but I don't find his presence on stage to be very energizing. Like, he's he's such a deliberate talker and such a, I don't know, like, his excitement doesn't infect me. And in fact, the I would say of the things that they introduced... The Apple Watch part of the presentation was, to me, the lowest energy. Yes. The guy who was up there talking about that, I think last time he was talking about HealthKit. Yes. He, I don't think he's a great presenter. He seems like he's, he, you know, talks about it, and but he doesn't seem that interested in what he's talking about. I don't know. I, I agree. I think he is kind of flat for presentation style, but I, I think it has probably more to do with his inexperience on the stage for Apple because... I, I bet you what he where he excels is in one-on-one -on -one contexts and, and with meetings of his peers. Yeah. Because he seems to be very smart 
and just not the type that has a lot of experience with presentation on this scale because when he's talking, I think he is talking to almost like one person down the front row of the presentation room. And and that probably is what sets him off. It kind of reminds me of what uh, Craig Federighi was like in his presentation. The first time he presented? Uh-huh. Yeah, he was very nervous. Yeah, nothing like what he is to now. He's he's totally been assimilated into his online persona of Hair Force One. It's he's just a different kind of guy. Yeah, he's. I think he's the best they've got right now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know what? I wouldn't be opposed to letting him run the run the event a little bit more. In fact, if there was actually someone who had a lot of time presenting, it was Phil Schiller. Yeah, all things combined, he wasn't like the one who'd introduce a topic because Tim Cook would usually come up to introduce the segue and then he would pass it back to one of the other people. Craig Federighi had a moment. We got to see some other people, you know, demos from Microsoft and from other parties, but it was actually Phil that talked more about the Apple, or sorry, the, the iPad Pro and the, what was the other product he talked about? He didn't talk about Apple TV he talked about the iPhones. Yes. And combined, that was a lot of stage time. Yeah. And he's definitely right up there. I mean, he's great. I think what what sets Craig Federighi and Phil Schiller apart is that they both seem excited about what they're talking about, and they have a sense of humor about it, yes. which is part of what made Steve Jobs so great, was that he both seemed genuinely like, this stuff is so cool. Like that came across as super genuine, and he also kind of winked and uh, made fun of himself at the same time. And, but he was the best at it. He had it down pat. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. But just going back to the team as a whole that we have today, this event, it went on without a hitch. There was just practically no embarrassing moments, very few dad jokes. There were there was a lot more sensibility to it, apart from Medicu's, you know, hot red shirt, you know, his, his uh, <laughs> hot rod shirt, his uh, product red shirt. I don't know what it was. Was it just my uh, interpretation or, or was it kind of, was there an awkward moment when they introduced Microsoft? Maybe a little, but I didn't catch it. Maybe they edited that for the YouTube cut of the presentation. I watched it live and, and yeah, I, I, it might've just been me thinking, you know, how times have changed that, you know, they're bringing Microsoft. I mean, it's, it's almost like they've been, Degrade, you know, demoted to a simple app provider, third party, you know, third party app developer, which I think they should focus on this rather than, you know, get out of the OS department, make some good apps. Well, it could be their strength for the coming years. And yeah. especially if they're trying to make more headway with the productivity across all spaces, because the Apple, the Apple platform as a whole is seeing more and more productivity users every year. Just uh, more and more people are seriously vested in their iPhones for work and, you know, leisure. And it's not just the iPhone now, it's the it's the MacBooks. It's really starting to take a lot of effect in the marketplace. So, yep. And the, the other thing here we have is that there was a lot of demo videos throughout this this presentation. It felt like uh there were very well-timed live demos, but then there was also lots and lots of video content. And as we commented last week, and I think others have as well, it seems like Apple is getting even better at these demo videos. But what makes them excel is that they're engaging while also being informational. So you don't really feel like you're watching a product video. You're watching a performance, a little bit of art. Like when they were introducing the Apple Pencil, they have a guy who's writing on the screen and he's writing the word hello. It was a nod to the 1984 original Macintosh computer because 
the handwritten lettering was just the exact same way that hello had been written across the original Macintosh. Hmm. Only this was in super high def. Like they, they were stressing how they've doubled the sensor technology in the display so that it could have an incredible amount of high fidelity on the iPad Pro. And just, it was a little bit of nuance. It was like some Tron style lighting effects that was going on under like the within the internals of the ipad pros they were showing off how the display of the screen worked you got the uh like the light cycles producing their ribbons from underneath the apple pencil it was just really beautiful to see yeah my understanding is that those videos are the sort of stand-in for johnny ive appearing on stage right that he you know, narrates those videos, but he also edits them and maybe even writes them. So it's like, instead of bringing him out on stage to do a demo, we get his kind of idealized version of a demo. And uh, yeah, they're really beautiful. Now, what did y'all think about the section though for the Apple Watch, where they were, they, they made it pretty tight. As you already mentioned, Rob, they had the guy who isn't especially gifted on stage to, re, you know, introduce what's coming to watch OS 2. And they were mostly review bits, like we're getting third-party complications. We're getting a little bit more color to the, the watch face from those complications and the like. But we're also getting some cool bands. We're getting, well, here was an interesting takeaway. First of all, they want you to view that the, the Apple Watch is very appropriate for people interested in productivity because you can zoom forward and backward your, your schedule, your day, using the time travel feature by just running the digital crown on the side and you'll be moving forward and backward with the weather, with your calendar, and maybe even like your flight tracking information. And that seemed to be really key to them where it kind of showed off the potential for apps on the Apple Watch. How much are y'all interested in this concept of what they call the time travel feature? <laughs> Crickets? No opinion really? Or? Yeah, I'm not super interested in it. I mean, what's funny to me about the Apple Watch is I keep hearing people like Marco Arment has been a big uh, advocate of the point of view that apps on the watch don't really make sense, that really the best thing about the watch are what you can see f through the complications and what you can see through glances and that the apps are not really working on it. And my experience, I talked about this the last time that I was on the show because we talked about the Apple Watch, but my experience is that it's a really great place to have your to-do list. Um, and I love calling up my to-do list, and I'm very excited for third-party, fully native apps, you know, like having OmniFocus right there on my wrist. I was a little disappointed that they didn't have more demonstration of, you know, what apps could actually do now that they are fully native. I think that apps are really valuable in that space. I think they would be better if they were accessible through glances, like... I think that every glance should be actionable. I would love it if I could pull up a glance of my OmniFocus, you know, most important perspective and check things off the list right there in the glance. I think that would be a better experience. But I wasn't super impressed by the things they chose to highlight. Yeah, I wasn't either. And I guess it's not that it was that they were uninteresting features as a whole. It's just they didn't have a lot to do with where the watch excels for me. The checklists, the the timers, the stopwatches, the quick glances at complications are especially effective on the watch. And it was strange to me that they pointed out 
that the Apple Watch already has over 10,000 apps on the App Store. I'm scratching my head thinking, what do they all do? Yeah. Why do we need 10,000 apps for my Apple Watch, even if I wanted to download 100 of them? Let's say that 100 of them are excellent apps. What on earth? Like, how would I manage all of those apps and make good use of the half of them? I feel like this is a conundrum really just with the Apple Watch because of its scale. Maybe there will come a day when there's a hundred or more that are actually use, you know, like um, that one individual customer user would especially benefit from, but it doesn't seem very scalable. And I wonder, like, I'm probably going to end up sticking to maybe a dozen unique apps that just make total sense on the watch. So the occasional moment where I want to use the remote on my watch to control my Apple TV, or I want to send a quick message to Rob and tell him, wasn't that the greatest blah, blah, blah that we heard on Twitter. You know, it'll be something like that. You know, I'll I'll poke a friend, but there's just not that many reasons to, to use apps. But when there are reasons, they're great ones like controlling a podcast in overcast. I disagree with Marco about his feelings with overcast. I would love to see a native overcast app on the, the Apple watch. Does that make sense? Like, does, does, do y'all, how do y'all feel about this? It feels like it's limited and 10,000 apps on the app store for the watch seems completely unnecessary or unenticing. <laughs> yeah. Where do you even get the apps for the, for the Apple watch? Is it, it through iTunes or is it, do you have to go through the iTunes store on the iPhone? I'll let you answer Rob. Yeah. If you have an app on your phone that offers a watch app, that watch app will be available as an option through the watch app settings it sounds it sounds incredibly complicated. I just fell asleep. Yeah, <laughs> I just fell asleep. No, I mean, I just I uh, I was interested in the ten thousand apps, so I just brought up uh, iTunes as I'm sitting here at the computer, and I see iPhone and iPad apps, but are no Apple Watch, which you'd think they would make it a little bit more easy to browse. Right. Yeah. Typically, you get to them from the App Store on the phone, and that's it. And when you find an app that has the Apple Watch support, then it'll say there download it for your phone. And then there'll also be a badge. Oh, this is also available for the watch. And you tap that and it gets you to the point that you can download it to your phone, or your sorry, your watch. There were a few apps that they demoed for the Apple Watch that were interesting to me, like iTranslate, yeah. where you speak to the watch and it translates English into, you know, German, French, whatever you're interested in right off of the fly. That sounds really interesting, and I think it would be far more effective when you get a native app so that it would just run faster. Then they have the much more interesting one they demoed, which is Airstrip, and we'll get to the Airstrip in a minute. Did you have any comments about iTranslate? Because I could see where this is going to be mattering more and more to people who travel, and just having this kind of feature on your watch, on your wrist, would be would be just kind of excellent. Because our watch has never been thought of as being a tool that can help you in any kind of travel like this before. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it didn't, I've never used a Translate app. I did travel a bit when I was younger. I haven't been abroad in a long time. So, I mean, I imagine it would be helpful, but didn't strike me as something that I would immediately use. I must have been... uh checking Twitter or something during the during this part of the keynote because I don't remember this. <laughs> yeah, I think if you blinked, you could miss it, yeah. Does it translate it audibly or does it just give you the text? He didn't give a demo. Oh, okay. 
the Apple guy just, you know, here we keep calling him the Apple guy. We don't even know his name. <laughs> yeah, he pointed out that iTranslate was one of his favorites for the Apple Watch. It kind of just made sense. Like the way he described it was simply speak to your Apple Watch and then it would give you the translation. But he didn't, we didn't get to see that demoed. So I don't know if it would say it aloud or if it would just put up the text on the display so that you could speak it aloud for yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the the app on for the iPhone. It's like seven bucks, and uh, it looks like yeah, you speak into it, and then it gives you the text. It also looks like there's some way to to sync with with another person that has the app. You know, you speak whatever, and then they read on their phone what you're saying, which is pretty cool. That that is cool. Well, then they got into the Airstrip app, which is a live feed for doctors and patients to monitor the patients and a variety of ways. So one of the things they showed was the heart rate for a mother and for the child in the womb. Then you could even get the baby's heartbeat and hear it audibly over the Apple Watch. And that was just a great demo because, first of all, they were showing how you, the doctor can get like the real life stats from his patients. And in theory, if the doctor was really connected to technology, like really modern and had it together... He could have all this data from his patients, whether he was in the hospital or not, and make snap judgments. The, before he picked up a clipboard and walked down the hall to get to the patient's room, it seems like that is the way of the future. I just don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, again, you know, it's funny, like I can sort of see abstractly why that would be valuable to a doctor or to a patient. But because it's not something that I can imagine using in my everyday life, I mean, I think Apple often comes up with these um, exceptional use cases for some of their stuff as a way of like showing how this is, this is, you know, the wave of the future. But I often am more impressed by the things that I can use every single day. The thing that makes me so happy about my Apple Watch is the tiny little things, you know, like right, being right. able to get a notification without anybody else in the room knowing that, you know, my my wrist just tapped, right? And, or even just controlling the playback of whatever I'm listening to on my phone without having to take my phone out of my pocket. And so some of these more grand ideas are interesting to me, but I'm more interested in them figuring out ways to make it even easier to get at things, you know, like I can't wait for them to figure out how to reprogram the stupid button that brings you to the contact screen. Like that just seems like the biggest waste of hardware functionality. Yes. You're talking about the contacts button on the side? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, you're so right. <laughs> I never use it because I only have one friend that uh, that's in the list that has Apple Watch and we're not really going <laughs> to tap that often. And we have no reason to share our heartbeats. Yeah. So when I'm pulling that up, I don't even think to begin messages from there. Like if I am going to produce a message on Apple Watch, I speak to Siri or I open up the messages app on the Apple Watch. I don't begin from the contacts app and uh, scroll around to my mother-in-law and, you know, tap that and then, you know, speak something to her. It, it just doesn't seem like the flow because – and probably the reason that it's not the flow – that comes naturally to us is because if we were using our phones to send a message, what would we do? Well, we would probably speak to Siri to say, dictate this for us, or we would just open the messages app. And this sort of contextual context menu doesn't exist on, on the iPhone. So it just doesn't make sense to use it on the Apple watch because we lack experience with this sort of interface. 
Yeah. So I think we've just talked uh, longer about the Apple Watch than Apple did. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, because a lot of it was quick show and tell. Like, you know, they just took very quick snapshots of the wristbands. They showed off the Hermes, Hermes uh, wristband, uh, fancy leather luxury bands. And yeah, sure, they're elegant. And it shows the future that Apple's trying to position this this piece of technology as a luxury good, but also they're just really trying to position it as the every person's watch because they also want people that want to just track their fitness to use the sport watch. And for those kinds of people on that end of the spectrum, we have all new Apple sports band colors. They come in a variety of colors, pastel colors, look a little bit more human. (laughs) But like, like you say, Joshua, they just generally sped right through the Apple watch presentation. Good stuff, but nothing earth shattering at this point. It was actually a very small update. Yeah. And then it was the iPad Pro, right? Yes. That was where, again, Tim Cook comes up between moments to say, well, that was great. Now we're going to talk about something really momentous. We're going to talk about the biggest thing since the introduction of the iPad. And for that, I'm going to call up Phil Schiller, you know, and so Phil comes up and Phil just goes right into it. Like the, again, very little review, not talking about where iPad began and where it is today, not showing what the, what's so special about the iPad Air 2. He gets right up to the specs of we're introducing a whole new iPad and this is what it is like. Yeah. So are any of you guys excited about the iPad Pro or either of you? Yes and no. I, uh, what do you think, Rob? I mean, like it, it's a beautiful piece of technology and it's far more capable than the iPads mini and the, the Air. But do I need an iPad this large? I don't know. I, I'd actually like to see the keyboard cover and use it with the iPad to see how much I, li- I enjoy writing with it. But because I have a MacBook Pro that meets all of my writing needs, I just cannot see myself getting the iPad Pro for a very narrow use case. I know you are, you know, you're a graphic designer by day. Do you not think that pen and, and like creating things with your hand versus a, some sort of trackpad or mouse? I, I mean, I think that would be, I mean, you are the, the, the customer for that. I think it would be loads of fun, but I don't think I would actually use it seriously because mm-hmm. most of our designers work is we've already figured out our workflows. Mm-hmm. So we'll start on some serious sketching paper, graphing paper. And then when we get some great designs that we, we love, then we digitize them, but you know, by a variety of different means that are already set in place. So if you're very accustomed to a pen and paper and pencil and paper, you're still going to have a, and no matter how good the Apple pencil is, there's going to be a learning curve to it mm-hmm. where you're going to have to learn how does the display respond to my wrist when I, when I put my wrist down to start a sketch. Well, nine times out of 10, it's not going to notice your wrist is there. It's going to, its sensors are smart enough to know that's the wrist on the display, not the pin on, you know, the pinpoint on the display. Mm-hmm. But it's at nine, it's at one time out of 10 when it starts to think, oh, well, this is input. It starts to spread ink all over the, the display because your wrist is there. That's going to be incredibly jarring to a designer and just throw you out of your groove every time that there is a mess like that. So, I have some experience with the Wacom tablets and their displays. Wonderful experience, but not something I could see using on a regular basis to warrant this sort of investment. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not a professional, but I've just been dabbling a little bit in, in Pixelmator for the new business venture we're starting. And uh, I, I, I've thought I could picture myself using, you know, like a Pixelmator or maybe like a Photoshop and just doing light work, you know, on the, on the couch in the evenings while we're, while we're, uh, we're working. So, well, for what it is worth, it would be very enjoyable to tinker with. It would just be a playground, a graphic, a designer's playground. I agree to that. Yeah. If I wanted to get serious work done in a efficient fashion, it's not the way I would go. But if I wanted to see where technology is headed and if I wanted to practice some new skills and pick up new skills and perhaps produce some videos and introduce ideas to people online and discuss where things are headed, then the iPad Pro is the way to go. That's what I would where I would be. What's been interesting for me is this fall, I got a new iPad from my work. Um, I had the uh, iPad Air 1 and they got me the iPad Air 2 and... I had sort of stopped using the iPad Air 1 because I got my, you know, my iPhone 6 Plus and it, I was just rarely taking the iPad out. And since I got the Air 2, it's, I'm sort of in love with it because it's, the screen is so much more beautiful and it's so thin to hold. And so I've been using it a lot. And one of the things that I do a lot with as a teacher is I work with PDFs. I use Readle's app, PDF Expert, which is just an amazing app. And it occurred to me that I love using that app because it's just a really well-designed app. And part of the reason that it's well-designed is because it was designed for the iPad. And, it, you know, you have to think harder about certain things when you're designing for the iPad than you do necessarily when you're designing for the Mac. And I feel like if there were more apps that were that well-designed for these productivity tasks, um, they would just be more joyful to use and that, and that the combination of those kinds of apps with the precision of something like the pencil, if the pencil could turn into the precision kind of pointing instrument that, you know, a mouse feels like this precision pointing instrument, and you could use that not just for drawing or writing, but also for like audio editing or video editing as a very precise ways of, you know, cutting things and changing things. I think that could be really powerful. But the big problem, and this is something that Ben Thompson wrote about on Stratechery, is getting the developers to make those apps. Because Apple has done a terrible job of making it a place where developers can make a living in the uh, iOS app store if they make these productivity apps. And so there just has to be a way to incentivize people to make those apps. If they make them, I think they'll be amazing. And I would love to try the iPad Pro, but it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Like people aren't going to make those apps if nobody buys it. Nobody's going to buy it if they don't make those apps. Agreed. Yeah, I wrote about this on my blog as well. It's what we all are thinking because this is what we've already seen, right, from the last few years of the iPad that go, you know, when you got the first generation, there were many great examples from Apple of what you could do with the iPad. And what it felt like was sort of a, a big brother to the iPhone without cellular. So the apps were enlarged and with uh, Steve Jobs' particular flair for skeuomorphism, you had iBooks apps where all the bookshelves looked like they were real and you would open a book and it had pages you flip through. So it made an immersive experience for some because it had a lot of whimsy to it. But when you boil it right down, 
to its essence, the consistency of most of those apps were things that you would expect from the iMac versus the Mac Pro in comparison. On the Mac Pro, you would want to use things like, like Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro and a very intensive graphics programs. And you imagine how movies are made on the Mac Pro. You don't picture the movies made on the iMac or the Mac Mini. You see that as the, the machines that run GarageBand and iMovie, where families make their photo albums. And that was sort of the zone for the iPad as well, that you would manage a GarageBand project you wouldn't actually use it for anything anywhere near the level of professionalism of editors like Logic Pro or Final Cut Pro. And we still have this problem for the iPad today. If you go to the App Store, there is no Logic Pro app on. I mean, yes, there is. I believe Apple created some sort of like interface for the iPad to... Uh, work with Logic Pro on the Mac, but it is not the full-fledged Logic Pro on the app, the iPad. And the same is true about Final Cut. There is no Final Cut for the for the iPad. They they prom- actually in the demo for the iPad Pro, they show off the power you can have for making an iMovie because it has a much better processor and much better graphics. It has a 64-bit A9. Sorry, yeah, A9X processor and the GPU combined are faster than 90% of portable PCs is what they said. And that was very impressive, but not so impressive if you still lack the productivity apps. So I can see your concern, Rob, and that's one of the things too. And just like there aren't enough use cases for the iPad Pro that benefit us or give us a reason to invest in an iPad Pro versus an iPad Air 2. We would do just fine with an iPad Mini 4 or an iPad Air 2. Yeah, I mean, I would love to try grading papers on it. I think, you know, being... being... <laughs> <laughs> that is like the most expensive clipboard <laughs> ever. That's, that, that's so true, though. Yeah. I would love to just play with the thing. If someone just gave one to, to me for Christmas, I wouldn't mind. Yeah, but it has a beautiful display. It sounds sounds wonderful. Twelve point nine inch display. It's larger than the MacBooks, and the resolution on that display, uh, two thousand seven hundred and thirty two pixels by two thousand forty eight. That's better than a lot of their their other displays. Like that. That's really high pixel density, and for that kind of reason, if you're interested in iOS gaming then the iPad Pro has loads of potential for the the high-end graphics games. So it could be that there are some there are some users that use the iPad in ways we would just not think of and would not interest us because we're just not that into the the iOS gaming scene. Yeah. After the iPad Pro, they talked about the the TV, right? <laughs> yeah. Of the things that they announced, the Apple TV was the thing that I was like, I'm definitely buying that because it's not super expensive and it feels like such a huge necessary upgrade to what already exists. <laughs> yep, I totally agree. It was like, yeah, 149 sold. <laughs> just, just tell me tell me when it'll be here. here here's my credit card. Let's go. <laughs> See, I'm not convinced. Uh, sell me on it, guys. What are y'all thinking? 
Tim Cook talked about Apple TV and how they had major announcements to introduce to us back in the spring. He was like, oh, guys, run out and get your Apple TVs because we have some very exciting news coming very soon. <laughs> you don't want to miss out on. I, I had the impression that they were going to pr introduce major updates for all the Apple TV models. So I had an Apple TV and I bought another one. So I was kind of disappointed that they had nothing to show for updates to the the Apple TV third generation model, which I already have. Um, it's all an investment in this new model, getting away from the old. And didn't they introduce the a TV OS or something like that? Like they, they were they rebranding the the OS. So it, it, I don't know if they've mentioned if that if I guess there'll be a version that will run on the older one. It, probably not, but it, it could be that you get you get a little bit of a bump. But I think if they just would have come out with the A8 processor, uh, the bump in speed, I would have bought it for 149. I mean, I, I like the Apple TV. It's just it just lags. It you know it doesn't load things right away. I mean, and I've got pretty good internet, so I don't think it's the internet. I think it's really old and that desperately needed a, a refresh. And I would have bought it just for the the processor. Yeah. Mm. Well, and for me, it w I bought a Roku last summer. Not this past summer, but the summer before, mainly because I was tired of not having universal search. I've enjoyed my Roku, but it's definitely not, you know, very slick. Looking at the interface of the new Apple TV, I mean, it looks beautiful. It looks really well designed. The fact that it has the Siri integration, I think, is great. You know, my kids will be able to use that. I I think that, you know, they, they made a big deal out of saying the future of TV is apps, I don't think they necessarily demonstrated that, except maybe with the MLB app, although I'm not a baseball fan, so I won't. Yes. I, that doesn't, doesn't appeal to me necessarily, but I feel like that is sort of the future. Like if more companies can make apps like that, that kind of reimagine what interaction with different kinds of content could be. I mean, if they made an app like that for the Olympics, my wife and I are huge Olympics fans. That would be amazing. Did it bother y'all at all that the remote control has to be charged from a lightning connector? It doesn't seem like a huge deal, but, but maybe it's a better trade-off than having the batteries be replaced in the last generation. <laughs> Those small, flat, round ones that you don't really think about except to pick them up at like the pharmacy and that's only once in a blue moon. One thing that's nice about the remote control is that it is going to be slightly larger, so it'll be harder for it to be lost in the couch cushions. Yeah, I don't mind having to charge it. Yeah. And one thing though about the controller is, do you see this one controller to rule them all? Like, do you see Apple sticking with this controller for many years to come as the go-to standard? Or do you think that they'll update it with future iterations of the Apple TV on a regular basis? Because I don't know about you guys, but I just thought that the, the remote in and of itself was not especially attractive. Maybe it feels right in the hand to have the touch surface up on top and the four buttons in the center, but it didn't look like a real gaming controller device. It's certainly not the most interesting remote I've ever seen, and it's the thing you use to control your, your device all the time. You know, like the user experience on the classic iPod just hit the mark. It was enjoyable to use. Do you feel like covered all their bases they needed to with this remote because it's really about serving the practical purposes? I think it'll be a question of how it feels to use it. But one of the things that I thought was a nice design touch that they talked about is that as you're moving your thumb over the touch screen, everything that the the TV is corresponding to moves a little bit. So like as you swipe your thumb across different possible movies to watch, 
those movies all kind of jiggle as you pass them and so that you can sense that your thumb is directly interacting with whatever it is on the screen rather than it just being kind of a like a selector it's more like you have this more uh it felt more static before and now it's like you're actually well it's actually introducing a little bit of skeuomorphism come to think of it yeah yeah it's a more visceral connection there's a three-dimensional quality to it it, it felt like the things were suspended in Google's material design up on your television set. Yeah. And I heard, you know, Mike Hurley has done, has talked a lot about on um, Connected how, you know, if they don't do an actual gaming controller, they're not serious about gaming. And I, I disagree with him a little bit, although I'm not a gamer, so I'm, I have no expertise uh, in that regard. But I think one of the things that Apple is really good at is figuring out ways of simplifying things so that ordinary people can enjoy them. And I actually think uh, the games that appeal most to ordinary people on iOS and maybe in general are the games where the interaction is super simple. And I think of games where, you know, games like... Um, the Crossy Road. and uh... Crossy Road or Alto's Adventure or uh, like Tiny Wings, where basically you're just touching to do one thing and the the whole game is responding to that one kind of interaction instead of having you know like a joystick or a a, a D pad or whatever it is. And I think that more people will enjoy those kinds of games that have a really simple interaction design than they would a game that requires you know five different kinds of buttons on your PlayStation controller. Yes. How about you, Joshua? Do you think that the kids will get a lot of mileage out of the games on here? There's no Minecraft. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they'll enjoy it. But I guess my one question with is with this remote is is on the the play pause button is on is the whole way to the bottom on the left. If you're scrolling through and you see something, I wonder if you'll be able to just touch it with the the touch surface with your thumb. Well, then for both a question for both of you guys, do you, do you feel a little disappointed that series Universal Search really just covers iTunes, Netflix, Hulu, HBO, and Showtime? With with the Apple TV as it stands now, there's already over like 50 different channels that you can choose from for content. And if you're doing a universal search, you actually expect it to be universal, like try to cover all the apps possible because something that comes at a price in iTunes will be free on Netflix. And so in three out of four cases, you'll probably be able to see the results for both and realize, you know, if I want to watch this in Netflix, it's free. It's a no brainer. But what if it's only available on Crackle? It's not available on Netflix and iTunes, but it's free on Crackle. Do you, do you feel like that's sort of a disappointment that at this point there, the universal search is not covering as more bases? Well, they did say that more would be coming. What they didn't make clear was who decides what gets included. Does Apple decide or do the developers make that information available? I mean, right now... I know that a lot of developers are updating their apps for iOS 9, and one of the things that they're making uh, available is those deep links, uh, part of iOS 9. And my hope is that that's what's going to happen with the apps on the uh, Apple TV, is that the, the developer can provide those deep links so that that information will appear in the universal search. But if it's true, that if it's just Apple get, that gets to decide who they're, you know, uh, you know, f most favored nation status apps are, then that, yes, that is a disappointment because I really want Amazon Prime video to be in there because that's one that I use a lot. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amazon Prime won't even come to the Apple TV. 
Well, I think it's Apple. I don't know. I just I don't think they'll let Amazon on there, but it, which is strange since that you can get it on the iPad and, and iPhone and then stream it up there. I think they're going to let it on there. I think, I mean, they're opening up the App Store. It makes sense to me that they will eventually because Amazon is actually much more cagey about letting other well, let me explain. You can get the Kindle app on the iPad, right? But you can't get the iBooks app on the Kindle, you know? And if you want to watch, you know, uh, Amazon Prime content, you can do that on the iPad, the iPad. If you want to get to any sort of media pertaining to, you know, anything that's on your iPad onto your Kindle, you just really can't do it. It's the, the Kindle devices only serve the Amazon products. You know, yeah, with the exception, they have like apps in an app store. You know, don't write us and tell us oh, they have an app store too. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying Apple has actually been more welcoming of the Amazon ecosystem than vice versa. And I, I wonder, I, I feel like you do, Rob, that eventually Amazon will make their way into the Apple TV that's just probably not the their top priority at the moment. Yeah, but I think it's going to be up to Amazon to do it, not Apple. Because if Apple is opening up the the... I mean, if they're creating an app store, there's no reason they would deny Amazon from being in that app store if they don't deny them from being on the, the iPhone and the iPad. Okay, well then, because of time, I have just one last question for you guys, and then we need to wrap up. We have the, the situation, going back to the remotes, there is only one remote that can connect to the Apple TV at a time, and then for other controllers to play games, you're going to need iPod Touches and iPhones or other specialized controllers made for Apple TV. Did this strike y'all as odd that you couldn't buy more remotes and so that everybody playing a game together could just all use the same kind of input device? Yeah, I, I, I didn't realize that. So yeah, that is kind of uh, interesting, but I guess they just want to sell more uh, iPod touches for, <laughs> for all the kids. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, it hadn't even occurred to me because we certainly have plenty that they can use. So yeah, that's interesting. That, that wasn't something that they wanted to talk about all that much on the you know stage in the presentation, but it was pointed out by multiple blogger sources that you just have the one remote to control the TV because it can control your volume. It can control the power of the television. It's going to be the one input device for your television. So when it comes to gaming, you're going to need another kind of input device. And if you're talking about the kids, all you know, getting together to play Apple TV games. I don't want to just hand them my iPhone for the next hour. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and there's a new iPhone that we're gonna get, <laughs> and I'm gonna get it. I think I'm gonna go with the 6s Plus. Nice. I'm really excited. Nice, Josh. We are out of time, though. <laughs> I would love to talk about it, but we are out of time. So maybe here's what we're going to do. We're going to have to make this a two-parter. We'll have to talk about the iPhone. There's still other bits here and there that I wanted to discuss. We just, uh, yeah, try to keep this show under an hour. So let's keep to the routine. Uh, Rob, thanks for joining us. And if possible, maybe we get you back next week. I don't know. We'll see what we can do. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me. Where would you like people to find you online? Uh, they can go to anxiousmachine.com, um, and I'm on Twitter at Rob McMyers. Okay, well, thanks again, Rob, for joining us. This completes episode 24. We're so glad that all of our listeners could join us as well. If you don't already have them, you can find the show notes with the links at tectonic.fm slash 24. And if you're looking for us on Twitter, because you're social and so are we, then check us out. We are at tectonicfm.com. 
I'm underscore Joe Darnell, and my co-host is Joshua Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer spelled P-E-I-F-F-E-R. If you would like to send us a message off the grid, then email is the way to go. Send those to hello at tectonic.fm. That's hello at tectonic.fm. If you're looking for ways to subscribe, Tectonic is available in iTunes, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and the iOS app's very own podcasts by Apple. I am Joe Darnell. Thanks so much again for listening to the Tectonic Podcast. It's a wrap. Uh, I knew that that was going to happen. <laughs> I knew, uh, and I, I knew. I mean, like, there's no way around it because we have a 45 minute, two hour long show, and there was just no way we could only talk about the Apple Watch for a measly two or three minutes. And technically, we could have talked about the Apple TV for another 20. Yeah. Uh, but what are you going to do, Rob? What, what would you suggest we do in this sort of case? I, I don't want to do recordings where we go for 90 minutes and then split them up, ran, you know in an arbitrary place in the middle. Well, you know, I mean, for me, it's fine not talking about the iPhone because I'm not going to buy one. Um, And so I wonder if it would be better for you to do a second part with somebody who is very excited about that new iPhone and has one on order. Yeah, I I had one friend who is. And we we tried to get Eddie Smith. You know, Eddie was going to be our guest and. I don't know if he's going to get the Apple uh, iPhone 6S Plus, whatever. But yeah, maybe, maybe not. Um, Joshua, you said you are, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, your wife too? Or is are you just upgrading? Uh, yeah, she definitely needs one. I'll, I'll send you a picture of her phone. It's unusable at this at this point. <laughs> it's, isn't it a 4S? <laughs> it's a 4 Well, not only that, it's not only a 4S, but it's the back is completely smashed. The front is half smashed and like coming up out of the phone and all like everything on the phone well everything on the phone is like an inverse so like everything's white scary beyond all reason so yeah i I might get her the maybe like the 16 gigabyte six or something 6s or something like that you know rob i know you told me before which one do you have though i have the six plus okay how do you like in the size i'm still rocking mine i love it you know i i dropped it over the summer um on a bike ride and so I had to, I, and I haven't gotten the glass replaced because it was just smashed in the corner. And then there was like one hairline fracture. And so I, I just bought a case to cover up that corner. And I really miss not, the, yeah, I miss the thinness since I have the case on it now. And so that makes me sad. I, I would like it better if I didn't have that case on it. I got a hard shell for my phone just because I would like it to last for two years while I'm on the installment plan. Then go to the iPhone 7. Yeah, I think the just the ring of the name iPhone 7 means good things. Like that that has to be a good model. I, I was impressed with 3D touch and things like that, but yeah, I can wait. Yeah, the the 6 Plus is really sturdy as long as you've got a case on it. Man, I'm sorry to hear that for you, Rob. I ha- I had a case on it. That's the thing that was so disappointing. But it was it was a case that only it didn't cover the glass, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I had it and I had it in a thing, you know. Uh, attached to the front of my bike where I could like use it as a like a speedometer and I hit and I hit a bump and it just and it fell out of the out of the thing and landed on the pavement and even though it was in the case it got this little ding in the corner so whatever
You know what? I think I'm going to tack this on as like an after show. <laughs> you know, after the music. Why not? I feel for you, Rob, because uh, my wife, she had a similar situation. She was at a, a football game. I think it was the first game of the season for West Virginia. And she was just uh, t- going up the stairs. And yeah, she lost uh, her grip on her phone. It had one of those uh, padding quill book case types. It fell face down with the book open. Total wreck. Blew my mind. Padding quill is uh, it's in Minneapolis. I got an, an iPad case from them once and I picked it up in, mm. in the store, which was actually just a warehouse. Yeah, they were nice. Well, we'll have a link to them in the show notes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Rob.